begin turning uh, to Genesis 12. Uh, Genesis 12. As we do so, I, I do want to remind us about um, one announcement from the bulletin this morning uh, relating to the uh, Romania team uh, that we will be sending out in July. Uh, we were meeting just a few moments ago, and it's, it's not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday night. Um, beginning at 6.30, we're going to start serving spaghetti. Uh, and then sometime around 7.15, uh, we're going to have a little 30 or 40 minute presentation for the church uh, about where we're going, what we're going to be doing there. And uh, we want to encourage as many of you as possible to, to be here for that. If you can't be there at 6.30, come at 7. And uh, if you can't be there at 7, come at 7.15. As you can come, we, we want you to be there because we want this to be something that the church as a whole was involved in. And uh, in order for you to be praying for us with knowledge, in order for you to be holding the ropes for the team as they go, uh, we want you to be aware of, of what the mission is and uh, what's happening. And so uh, we will have a sign-up sheet for that. I, I meant to have it up this week, but it'll be up next week. Uh, but, but go ahead and just put that in your mind uh, a week from Wednesday. Uh, we're going to have that presentation. And, uh, we want you to, to be here for that because we want to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, don't we? So let's begin reading in Genesis 12. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 1, uh, but we're going to keep reading this time all the way down to verse 9. So Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Notice those first three words of verse 4. Those first three words of verse 4. So Abram went. Here's a 75-year-old man. And God is calling him to a radical change in his life. He's being called to leave the life he's known. And yet here is the evidence that Abram trusted God, that he went. Faith without works is dead. 
Here is what should define us as Christians. Here is what will define all who have the same saving faith that Abraham had when we hear God speak to us and give us instructions because we trust Him. We seek to obey. And thus, when we open up our Bibles and when we read in God's Word commands to us or callings on our lives, we do them. They may seem strange. They may seem different than the norm of our culture. The commands that God gives us might, might seem strange to us to, because they require us to change something about our habits or our patterns. We might think, well, at this season of my life, after so many years of living this way or having this habit or having this pattern as a part of my life, and now, now here I am at this age and God reveals this to me now, does He really think I should change this at this age? Well, at any age, if we trust God, we will change accordingly because our desire is to conform our lives to His Word because He knows best. Here is the evidence that we trust God. Whatever it is He reveals to us, we humble ourselves, we believe He is wise and good, and therefore we do it. Amen? It's how it ought to be anyway. And if we trust God, it is how it will be. We see here that Lot goes with Abram. Lot's father is dead. Lot's grandfather is now dead. It appears that this young man is now in the care of his uncle. And when his uncle leaves for Canaan, his nephew Lot goes with him. We're told that the people that Abram had acquired in Haran are with him as well. And uh, some people want to debate what this means, that, that Abram had acquired people while he is in Haran. Um, the word in the, the Hebrew actually refers to souls. Uh, if we were to translate it literally, it would literally say the, the souls that Abram had acquired. And that word souls gets some people's attention and makes them think that maybe Abram had had preached Christ in Haran, had preached his God, Yahweh, in Haran, and that people had believed, and that these are followers of Abram's God now traveling with him. Um, I think more likely these are simply servants, <laughs> uh, to be honest. I think God has already begun to bless Abram with flocks and with herds, and that these people who are now traveling with Abraham's family are those whom God has brought into Abram's life to care for his possessions and to care for these flocks and these herds. That doesn't mean they're not being influenced by Abram. That doesn't mean they're not being uh, brought to know Abram's God, but I think more likely that's uh, what's in view. Abram and his wife and his nephew and all these others who are with them, they come into Canaan. And the first place they stop is this oak of Moreh at Shechem. Uh, Moreh means teacher. And so this was literally the, the oak of the teacher at Shechem. Um, now, whether it was called that in Abram's day, or rather this is Moses in his day identifying this tree, or someone later identifying this tree by the name it has, then we, we don't know. But this place called Shechem is going to show up again and again and again in our Old Testaments. There are going to be some important events in Israel's history that are going to take place at this place called Shechem. Abram comes to this oak and God appears 
to him. Before, as far as we can tell, God had simply spoken to him. And exactly how that happened, we we aren't told. But now, we actually have a theophany. That is, God appearing to Abram. To which you might say, I thought God was a spirit. That God is invisible. And you would be right. And yet, throughout the Bible, God at times appears to people. He chooses to reveal Himself in a visible way that makes His presence known. Think of the the pillar of fire. right? Well, this is what happens here. We we don't know how God revealed Himself to Abram, what what form that was, whether it was in in the person of Christ as the angel of the Lord, or whether it was uh, in some sort of uh, fire uh, or, or something else. We don't know. But God appeared to Abram and said to him, to your offspring, I will give this land. Right? Look around, Abram, look around. To your offspring, I will give this land. Now what makes that striking is that just before that, Moses tells us, now the Canaanites were in the land. And so at the moment, this promise doesn't look all that believable. But Abram believed God's promise, and he showed it by building an altar there and worshiping God. The text doesn't say that Abram made sacrifices on the altar, but since that is what, is, what it means to worship at an altar, we would, we would assume that, that a sacrifice was made. And then Abram travels on. He travels to an area between the cities of Bethel and Ai, and he, he, we're told he pitched his tent there. He probably had many tents, but the point is he, he settled there for at least some period of time. We're still in central Palestine. We're still uh, about 40 miles um, south of Jerusalem. And uh, this is a a place that will be of particular importance in Israel's history yet again. Particularly this place called Bethel. In fact, until the days of Josiah, uh, Bethel will be second only to Jerusalem as far as cities in importance uh, in the kingdom of Israel. So here, in between Bethel and I, Abram settles for a while and he again builds an altar to the Lord to worship Him and to call on His name. Through sacrifice, He comes to God in prayer, declares His need for God, His dependence on God. We're not told how long Abram stayed at this particular spot, but eventually he picks up his tent and he journeys on, going toward the Negev. That is, he's going towards that, that dry area at the southern part of Canaan. And as we'll see next week, he keeps going through the southern part of Canaan on into Egypt. So that's a brief overview uh, of what happens in these verses. What I want to do now is, is bring our attention to uh, a couple of truths that we see here. And, and one is this, that the appropriate response to God's great promises is worship. That the appropriate response to God's great promises is worship. We have spent together over the last several weeks much time learning about how we have been blessed to be citizens of this greatest of all the kingdoms in the world, of how we have this glorious land that is fairer than day, right? the the land beyond the river, as we were just singing, that, that we are looking forward to, and that is being given to us by God, by grace. We don't deserve that. It's pure mercy that that's being given to us. 
best of all, we have God as our God in us and with us. Our lives have purpose and meaning as He's making us a blessing to the world. We have all of these tremendous promises. You and I could not come up with better ones. I challenge you to do so. What is our response to these promises? What was Abram's response? God says, Abram, look around. I'm going to give you this land. And what does Abram do? He worships. He believes God and and therefore as he expresses his faith, his gratitude, his submission to God, his dependence on God, he does this through worship. In fact, worship is going to, to characterize the life of Abraham as we see throughout his life. He continues this practice of, of sacrificing at the altar to God. And worship should characterize all who live by faith. Practically, this means that in our, our corporate worship services together and when we're worshiping in private or with our families, even in our just daily lives of seeking to worship God with, with who we are and our daily task. We should keep the glorious promises of God before us. Because the truth is, when we look upon them, when we think about His promises, when we meditate upon them and really believe them, we don't have to make ourselves worship. Worship happens. Worship is a response that is brought out by seeing and savoring these things. What will motivate our hearts to remain constant in joy Constant in humility, constant in in gratitude, keeping our eyes on the precious promises of God. Isn't that what the song, How Firm a Foundation, is all about? Where each verse in the hymn is just another promise of God. We just sing promise after promise after promise. And what is that meant to do? It's meant to strike our hearts and to cause us to love our God all the more. We should love these promises. We should love the kingdom of God that that we have been granted to be a part of. We should constantly think about how perfect this kingdom is. We should love to think about heaven and the new heavens and the the new earth. And and we should sing songs about it. And we should write poems about it. And we should be constantly encouraging one another. Look forward to the day, brother. Look forward to the day, sister. We should love the promise that God is with us and He's never going to leave us and He's never going to forsake us. As we think about the Spirit of God indwelling us and His presence with us, the fact that we're going to enter into the fullness of the presence of the Holy, Holy, Holy God of the universe in eternity, that should bring us great joy. We should be constantly thinking about God's glory, His wisdom, His love, His goodness, His power, His mercy, His righteousness, His majesty, His splendor, knowing that that this God that we're thinking about is our God. He's he's our Father and and through Christ we are His children and we're going to be with Him forever. So that even in the midst of shedding tears for a lost loved one, even in the midst of a tragedy that strikes or even in the midst of the daily annoyances that come our way, we can have a deep-seated joy and a deep-seated love for God that moves us to continue worshiping Him even in the hardest moments of our lives.
Worship is the appropriate response to these promises. And we will be a worshiping people to the extent that we hold the promises before us and believe them. And so we should keep these things before us in the songs we sing, in the books we read, in the verses we memorize, in the conversations we have with one another. And in doing so, these will keep our hearts constant in love and worship. We ought to be very afraid when our hearts begin to grow cold toward these promises. We ought to take action. The moment we feel that our hearts are experiencing a season of deadness towards these glorious truths. Can you imagine? Well, I, I tell you what happens. You ever open up your mailbox and you get one of those things in the mail and it says, You've won a million dollars. What do you do? You don't believe that, right? Well, so also there are times when we take the absolutely true promises of God that are far more glorious than a million dollars and because we have come into a place where we just don't really believe them at the moment, we trash them, right? We don't take them to heart. We don't joyfully celebrate them. The moment we feel our hearts growing cold to these promises, we don't want to talk about them, we don't want to think about them, we're we're more interested in TV than, than the promises of God, We ought to fall on our knees and cry out to God, Oh God, break my heart again. Help me to behold again the wonders that are in your word and to be stunned. Folks, we are to live as an overwhelmed people. We are to live as an awestruck people. That's what it means to be a Christian. There is a second truth I want to bring from our passage here. It's the truth that we can only come to God in worship and prayer and celebration and communion with Him through a sacrifice that atones for our sins. Since the fall of man, there has never been such a thing as real communion with God, real worship to God that has not been made possible by sacrifice for sin. In our passage, we find Abram worshiping God by doing what? Building Altars. What's an altar? An altar is a structure on which sacrifices take place, right? In the Bible, we find all sorts of different altars because we find some made of mud, some made of stone, some made of wood, others made of metals like bronze or even gold. The Hebrew word for altar literally means the place of slaughter or the place of sacrifice. Offerings such as grains could be brought to an altar and they would be burnt upon it as sacrifice. In Old Testament Israel, sacrificial animals were slain and then its blood was presented to God by sprinkling it on the sides of the altar. And then they would take the fat, this is a little gross, they would take the fat of the animals, they would take its entrails, its kidneys, its liver. God specifically mentions the body parts He wants for the priest to set upon the altar. And then it was cooked, it was burnt, it was set afire on the altar. Some people claim that making sacrifices on the altar was a pagan form of worship that Abram then adopted and directed towards the true God. That he basically looked around at the pagan peoples and said, that's how they worship their God, therefore I will now worship the true God that way. I think it's completely backwards. I think 
the pagan practice of sacrificing on altars is a perversion of the original way of worship, which was through sacrifice. In fact, I think the practice of offering sacrifices at an altar was instituted by God Himself. Let me try and show that to you. Turn with me to Genesis 3. Because who was the first person in the Bible to sacrifice an animal? In Genesis 3, beginning in verse 20. This is after the fall of man and the curses. Genesis 3, verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. That's actually a very important verse because God has just pronounced that they're going to die, right? And immediately after proclaiming this death, right? For you are dust and to dust you shall return. The end of verse 19. And then as an act of faith, Adam calls his wife the mother of all living. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. As far as I know, you don't skin an animal without killing it. Right? God was the first to kill an animal in order to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness with its skin. Their nakedness was a symbol of their, of their sinfulness. It was covered through sacrifice so that they could have communion with God. They were not allowed to stay in Eden. But Adam and Eve truly were saved at Genesis 3.15 promised. And as we see here in verses 20 and 21, there seems to be this foretelling that Adam and Eve are now believers and that we have this sacrifice covering their sinfulness so that they can now have communion with God, worship Him, pray to Him. And therefore, it absolutely does not surprise us when we come to Genesis 4, verses 3 and 4. And we find their two sons. And what are their two sons doing? Worshiping God by sacrificing at an altar. Right? Genesis 4, verse 3. In the course of time, literally in the Hebrew, that's at the end of days. I think this is referring to Sabbath day worship. This was the seventh day of the week. It was the end of days. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Who told Cain and Abel to worship this way? Well, we're not told. (laughs) But it certainly seems as though it has been instituted by God Himself. He, he seems, he, this seems to be in accord with how He has told them to worship, right? They, when, when they worship well via sacrifice, as Abel does with a, a heart of gratitude and submission to God, it was accepted by Him. And so we have God sacrificing an animal for Adam and Eve's sake, pointing to Christ. Right there at the end of, of chapter 3, we have Cain and Abel sacrificing at an altar. Genesis 8, verse 20. Genesis 8, verse 20. Noah and his family get off the ark. And I'm sure the moment they do, they kiss the ground. And they're so thankful to be off of that boat. And they get off the boat. And what is the very first thing we have recorded that Noah does? Noah, I'm sorry, Genesis 8, verse 20. 
Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So here is Noah worshiping the true God and doing so as God had instituted through sacrifices on an altar. Now, absolutely, by the time we come to the days of Abram, and probably quite a bit before him, um, already people had begun to depart from God, and they had taken this practice of offering sacrifices and begun using it in their pagan worship. Today and throughout history, there have been scores of false religions in which people have sacrificed on altars to false gods. And this has always been, I think, a satanic distortion of the true worship that God commanded His people. In fact, Deuteronomy 32.17 says that when people sacrifice to false gods, they're actually sacrificing to demons. Did you know that? It's a perversion. But it's a perversion of that which was right and good, which was that God's Old Testament people would worship Him through sacrifice. Now, why would God choose for His people in the Old Testament to worship Him that way? Well, you you know very well, don't you? We know why God ordained it to be so. Every sacrifice that was made in the Old Testament taught these people that they were sinners and that God's wrath must be appeased if they were to approach Him. Moreover, every sacrifice taught that it was only through the death of another that God's wrath towards them could be appeased so that they could approach Him with their prayers and their worship. And thus, every sacrifice pointed to Christ, who is the propitiation, the one who by His perfect life and now substitutionary death appeases the wrath of God so that there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The ultimate earthly altar was the cross on Golgotha on which the Lamb of God was slain. Now, One implication of this is that when Jesus died on the cross, no longer was there to be any more sacrificing on altars. The sacrifice to which all the others had pointed had come. And God's call for His people now is to look back to that sacrifice and indeed to look even presently to the sacrificial lamb, to Christ Himself. He is our means to approach God. He is our means to worship Him and commune with Him. Moreover, just as the high priest took the blood of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement and went into the Holy of Holies and presented the blood of the sacrifice to God, sprinkling it on His mercy seat, right? The sides of the Ark of the Covenant on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. So even now, Jesus stands before God presenting Himself before God as the crucified Lamb. He presents Himself before the Father as the sacrifice that was made for us. 
In other words, atonement for our sins isn't just a past tense thing. This very moment, our great high priest is in the ultimate holy of holies, heaven itself, and he is forever presenting himself as the once for all atonement for our sins. So there's no more need for sacrifices here on earth. Indeed, it's offensive to think that we would go on sacrificing when the sacrificial lamb is in heaven making atonement for us even now. Continuing to sacrifice would say that Jesus is not enough. That His atoning work is not sufficient. Do you remember Jesus telling the Jews, quoting from Daniel, about the abomination that causes desolation? Remember that in all of that discourse? He's referring to the book of Daniel, but He's also foretelling this great sin that's going to have to do with the temple that will cause great judgment to come on the Jews. In fact, he says that the temple itself will be destroyed. In fact, he told his disciples, not one of these stones will be left on top of another. Right? And, and people wrangle back and forth about what was this great sin? What is this great abomination that's going to take place in the temple that is going to cause it to be desolated, destroyed? Well, some have suggested, and I think rightly so, that perhaps the greatest abomination that ever occurred in the temple was not when other nations came up and set up their pagan images in it, which did happen, happened before the time of Christ. But having God's people continue to make sacrifices on its altars after Jesus had already come as the once-for-all atonement, that was the great sin, the great abomination. That here is Christ in heaven presenting Himself as our sacrifice for sins and below is God's unfaithful, unbelieving people refusing to rest on the sacrifice of Christ and instead continuing to rely on their own sacrifices. They are forsaking the reality for the shadow. <laughs> right? God destroyed the temple, 70 A.D. God destroyed its altars in part to say that now Christ is our temple. Christ is the altar. He is our way to God. There is no other. All these other things were shadows. Don't turn to the shadows. Look to where the signs are pointing. We've used the illustration before. If you're, you're heading down I-95 to Disney World and you see a sign that says Disney World 50 miles and you stop and you, you pull out your picnic blanket and your food and you get around the sign and you say, we're here! Right? We made it to Disney World. Well, no, you haven't. You're at the sign. Don't stop at the sign. Go to where the sign is pointing you. To go to Christ. Gone are the days when people had to come to a particular place to worship God. No longer do people have to travel to the altars of the temple in order to make sacrifices and have their sins forgiven and their prayers heard. No, now people are called only to go to Christ in faith and to receive Him as their sacrifice. There is no more sacred space there is no more need for pilgrimages, right? right? No, no, no traveling to Jerusalem in order to commune with God anymore. It is to Christ we must go 
if we are to know God and worship God. This is why I think it is unwise for Christians to, to treat their church buildings as though they are somehow special, super spiritual places in which we draw particularly close to God. I want to be careful here because I do think it's absolutely fine to be respectful in a place of worship. Indeed, I, I think we should be respectful wherever we are. right? But we must not act as if there's something now more sacred about this room than any other room we've been in today. Wherever two or more people are gathered in Christ's name, there He is with them. And their real corporate worship and communion with God is possible. I think this is also why it's unwise, and and this is my opinion, to call church steps altars. Or to teach by our words or by our actions that, that those steps are somehow special in some way, as if they have some supernatural power or there's, God works in a special way at them. We are not to have altars anymore. It is by going to Christ that people draw near to God. We don't want to return to the shadows. We commune with God. We rest in God. We commit ourselves to God through Christ. And because of Christ, this can now happen anywhere you are. So that if I'm witnessing to somebody in in the mall, I don't have to say, I want you to be saved, but we have to go to this place. Or we have to go do this ceremony. Or we have to go do this thing. No, it's right here where you are. Go to Christ. He is your Lamb. And you can commune with God and have Him as your God forever. The altar was at the center of Abram's worship The altar was at the center of all Old Testament worship. The sacrifice was God's appointed means to make worship possible. And therefore, Christ now should be at the center of all our worship. Are you not thankful for the Lamb of God? Hmm. I have blank pages in my sermon. There we go. Two implications of this. Two implications. One, we should always approach God in worship and in prayer, depending on Christ alone. Just as Abram approached God through sacrifice, we must approach God through our Lamb, Jesus Christ. It is all too easy for us to just get into the habit of when we finish our prayers saying, in Jesus' name, Amen. And you do know you can say, in Jesus' name, Amen, and not be praying in Jesus' name. Rather, communing with God and worshiping Him through Christ means doing so in an actual sense of dependence on Christ. It means that every time we, we, as, as we walk with God throughout our day, when we have our special times of private or family or, or corporate worship, we are to approach God in humility, knowing that, that we are undeserving of His presence, that we are undeserving to have a relationship with Him, and it is only by our dependence on Christ that we do. Self-confidence can have no place in the worship of God. If we harbor any ideas that we are somehow in and of ourselves attractive to God, able to come before Him on our own merits, then our worship is not worship. 
And our prayer is not prayer. Romans 14.23 says, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If our worship is not proceeding from faith in Christ, resting in Christ, then our worship is sin. If our prayers go up to God, but our prayers are not being spoken from a heart that is resting in Christ, depending on Him alone as our way to God, then our prayers are sin. The sobering reality, the humbling thought is this. That because we in this life are never completely free from self-confidence, there has never been an act of worship or an act of prayer in our lives that hasn't been stained by sin. Have you ever thought about that? But by God's grace, when those traces of self-confidence within us were present with real faith in Christ, by God's grace are real at some measure dependence on Christ as our way to God, then God has mercifully forgiven even that sin and received our worship and our prayers for Christ's sake. Let me share with you a Puritan prayer that I think expresses well how we ought to approach God and worship. This is a prayer from a little book called The Valley of Vision. Some of you will know The Valley of Vision, book of Puritan prayers. This prayer is called Meeting God. Listen to this, this prayer. Great God, in public and private, in sanctuary and home, may my life be steeped in prayer, filled with the spirit of grace and supplication, each prayer perfumed with the incense of atoning blood. Let every prayer I pray have a little, have a little aroma of Christ in it because I'm resting in Him as I pray. Help me, defend me, until from praying ground I pass to the rim of unceasing praise. Urged by my, by my need, invited by Thy promises, called by Thy Spirit, I enter Thy presence, worshiping Thee with godly fear, awed by Thy majesty, greatness, glory, and encouraged by Thy love. Real worship. I am all poverty as well as all guilt, having nothing of my own with which to repay Thee, but I bring Jesus to Thee in the arms of faith pleading His righteousness to offset my iniquities, rejoicing that He will weigh down the scales for me and satisfy Thy justice. Right? That's, that's how we approach God. Nothing in my hands I bring as I come to worship. I come only bringing Christ. I bless Thee that great sin draws out great grace. That although the least sin deserves infinite punishment because done against an infinite God, yet there is mercy for me, for where guilt is most terrible, there the mercy in Christ is most free and most deep. Bless me by revealing to me more of His saving merits, by causing Your goodness to pass before me, by speaking peace to my contrite heart. Strengthen me to give Thee no rest until Christ shall reign supreme within me in every thought, every word, every deed, and in a faith that purifies the heart, overcomes the world, works by love, fastens me to Thee, and ever clings me to the cross. Which is why we sing, Jesus, keep me near the cross. Here is how we are to approach God. We are to approach God with joy. We are to approach God with happiness. 
But we are to approach God with reverence and especially with a humble faith in Christ. Because it's only in Him that real worship and prayer are possible. Second implication. Christ and His saving work, to which the altars pointed, should be at the center of our worship. Christ is not only the means by which we can praise God, give our petitions to God, but as we have seen, Christ is also the means by which God is giving us every blessing He has for us. Listen carefully to this. We bless God through Jesus because God has first blessed us through Jesus. Right? John Owen, the great Puritan theologian, said that every gift that God gives to His people, He places in the hands of Jesus, and Jesus gives it to the people. And every act of worship, praise, or service that His people give to God, we place in the hands of Jesus, and Jesus brings it to God. Jesus is the center of it all, and God has ordained it this way so that He would receive the glory. He is the mediator between God and man. He is our elder brother, the firstborn, the one to whom all the promises of Abraham have been given, and it is only in our being connected to Him as a part of His bride that we now share in the inheritance. We share in the blessings. And so God has placed Jesus before us as the one to whom we are to worship. We love our Father. We worship our Father as we worship His Son. God has given all things to Christ. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of Christ. The new earth will be the land of Christ. The Spirit of God that He has placed in our hearts is the Spirit of who? Christ. The presence of God with us this moment is the presence of Christ. The blessing that we are to be to all the families of the world are in fact Christ blessing the families of the world through us. It all comes down to to Him. God has ordained it so that from Jesus and through Jesus and to Jesus are all things forever and ever. Amen. And therefore, Christ and His work should be at the center of our worship. When we gather together, what theme should be most prevalent in our songs? What theme should come up again and again in our sermons? To what are we to set our attention and our affections as we worship God, Christ, and His saving work? All the promises of God to us are in Jesus, yes and amen. Praise be to God, He has blessed us. What, Ephesians 1.3? He has blessed us in Him with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And therefore, if we want to celebrate the promises of God, if we want to celebrate the grace of God, if we want to celebrate everything that God has given to us, how can we celebrate any of it apart from celebrating Christ? Because it's all given in Him. And so, Christ and His work should be at the center of all our communion with God, corporate, private, family. As you sing, as you pray, as you read the Scriptures together, Christ should be everywhere. Every passage of Scripture points to Him. As we worship God through our daily lives, Christ and His cross should be ever before us as the source of our joy, as our favorite topic of conversation. As church, we should love to sing songs about Christ and His work and what He has accomplished. We should love to preach the message of Christ crucified to our own hearts every day. 
We should read our Bibles with a Christ-centered perspective. We should memorize verses that help us think upon Christ and place them deep into our hearts. I want to close with quoting one of my favorite hymns. This was written by John Newton. You know him for Amazing Grace, but he also wrote this hymn, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. It makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the troubled breast. Tis manna to the hungry soul and to the weary rest. Dear name, the rock on which I build, my shield and hiding place, my never-failing treasury filled with boundless stores of grace. By Thee my prayers acceptance gain, although with sin defiled. Satan accuses me in vain, and I am owned a child. Jesus, my shepherd, husband, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring. Weak is the effort of my heart, and cold my warmest thought. But when I see thee as thou art, as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. Till then, I would thy love proclaim with every fleeting breath, and may the music of thy name refresh my soul in death. Friends, there is absolutely nothing better in the world, no higher privilege that you could be granted than to be a worshiper of God. And it is in Christ and through Christ alone that you have that great privilege. So let us love our Savior. Let us cherish Him. Let us hold fast to Him. And let us live for His glory. Amen? Amen. Before we pray, are there any questions? Um, comments that you would like to, uh, to make or ask about what you've heard this morning uh, or this evening. No promises that I have the answers, but I'm always willing to, to try.